You are listening to the Talking Tough Podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. Hey, everybody, Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough from the uh, isolated wilds of Maui. It's quiet up here while the rest of the world is going crazy. And uh, I suspect with the guest we have on today, we'll probably talk a little bit about that. You all know that uh, we don't like to do politics here on Talking Tough and, and certainly not going to attempt to enter into that parade today. Uh, I know I'd be out, uh, out outsmarted and out educated by our guest on that in any case. Uh, but I think it's uh, impossible to avoid what is going on out there, so to speak. As far as what's going on here, you know, not a whole heck of a lot. It is quiet up here today, save for the wind. We're in the midst of a major windstorm. So if you hear that in the background, my apologies. The other background noise, which you've all become accustomed to, are my maniacal little squad of pit bulls. And because of the wind, they are barking their heads off today. So uh, again, I beg forgiveness for that as well. Uh, thankfully, here comes a not too clever uh, segue into mentioning our sponsor. Thankfully, my dogs take Botanic Balance, which keeps them calm and healthy. www.botanic-balance.com. All right, I am ready to uh, to start talking a bit about our guest today before we bring him on. Now, my producer, John Pozerowski from Two Man Power Trip is listening in. He probably could appear like the magical voice of Oz if I asked him to. John, are you uh, are you out there? Yes, sir. Uh, there, he, there he is, yep. a voice and a logo. That's a two-man power trip, everybody. So, John, you'll remember when we first started talking about this podcast three months ago. Gosh, it seems like a year now, doesn't it? We've got... Uh, mm -hmm. We've gotten a lot done in a short period of time. When we started to talk about this, if you'll remember, one of the very, very first names I had on my wish list was Azim Kamisa. Yes. And, in, uh, you know, we got him today. I'm really excited about this. We, um, we almost got there once before. Things happened in this world which prevented us from going forward. We, we do have Azim Kamisa on today. I'm excited about that. So a, a lot of the listeners now, a lot of our viewers and listeners are probably saying, well, who's Azim Kamisa? So I'll, I'll say this much. If you pay attention to what's going on in the world today, to people that are truly enacting change for the betterment of humanity, you know who Azim Kamisa is. He's an extremely busy guy. Uh, so I don't know this for a fact and I'll ask him, but I'm guessing he does not spend a whole lot of time and social media like so many of us do for better or for worse uh therefore not a big social media profile out there but a huge reputation in in the world of doing good uh john i'm going to do something that's not customary for me i've, I've actually never done this before but i want to read a paragraph or two off of his bio just because it says it a lot better than i ever could and it's going to set up uh some of the questions i have for him as well as bringing him into this podcast a moment from now so it's not just me talking so azim kamisa in 1995 
Azim Kamisa suffered an irreparable loss when his son Tariq was the innocent victim of a gang shooting. But instead of seeking revenge, Kamisa sought peace. He reached out to his son's killer to offer him forgiveness and a chance at parole. Since then, he, Azim, has counseled countless students through the Tariq Kamisa Foundation, a nonprofit organization he founded to prevent violence and provide opportunity amongst at-risk youth. His 25 years of extensive global speaking, books, and media coverage spawned a forgiveness movement that has reached millions. Now, that's a very to-the-point and succinct paragraph that tells a hugely more involved and more in-depth story, which is what I want to get into. Uh, quickly, before we bring Mr. Kamisa on, his bio goes on to talk about the, uh, the, the numerous people he's affected positively, the people he personally has worked hand-in-hand with, including President Clinton, Janet Reno, Ted Koppel, Desmond Tutu, Pope John Paul, the Dalai Lama, the Muhammad Ali. And John, you would think this guy could connect himself to a big name or two out there, wouldn't you? Right, but, yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> quite, 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 a, uh, quite a list. Uh, I first learned of Azim's Kamisa many, many years ago. I don't recall how I came across it, either online, most likely, or maybe even a good old-fashioned newspaper. The story of him reaching out to his son's killer and forgiving him absolutely blew me away. I became a fan immediately. I've become a, a much bigger fan since as I've become more and more familiar with his amazing work. Without further ado, I am thrilled to welcome to Talking Tough, Mr. Azim Kamisa. Thank you, Rick. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, it's uh, it's my absolute pleasure. As you know, Azim, I started uh, calling you and emailing you and texting you months ago. and. Uh, this has been in the works for a while. I thank you very much for, for making the time. And uh, I, I look forward to what I think is going to be a pretty interesting conversation here today. Likewise. So I'd like to dive right in, if you don't mind. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier, when Azim and I talked for just a moment or two before we, we got on air here, uh, as you all know, I tend to ask pretty personal questions. So I explained to, to Azim, because he and I don't have a prior relationship like I do with many of my guests, so we don't really know each other, per se. So if I get too personal, let, let me know, please, and, and that's fine. I, I'm very, extremely, completely forgiving of that, as are our viewers and, and listeners. So Azim, it, it talks about your son, Tariq. This bio talks about your son, Tariq, being murdered and goes immediately to you forgiving your son's murderer. In the bio, in the bio. Do you mind telling us a bit about that process? I mean, when you got the news, and here's my first challenging question to you, I can't imagine you immediately reacted by, oh, let me find out who this guy is so I can go forgive him. I can't imagine that is the process. Maybe it was, but if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, obviously, when I got the call, uh my first knee-jerk reaction uh, from homicide was that they made a mistake, like a mistake in identity. I live in uh, the San Diego area. We have a lot of Hispanics here, uh, dark skin like me and, and my son. And I thought, oh, it didn't make any sense. He was a good kid, uh, worked uh, as a pizza delivery man on Fridays and Saturdays while he was attending San Diego State University. He wanted to be a journalist. He was a gifted writer and a great photographer. 
and uh, his uh, uh, life mission was someday to work for National Geographic. Uh, kind, generous, uh, great sense of humor, uh, a joy to be around. And uh, so I very quickly hung up on homicide, thinking, you know, this can't make any sense. And he had recently gotten engaged to his uh, girlfriend that they'd been dating for two and a half years. Her name is Jennifer. And they'd moved into the same apartment. So I quick, quickly hung up on homicide and called his home and uh, fully expecting him to pick up the phone. Of course, he didn't. She did. And she couldn't say anything. And she was sobbing because homicide went to their place first. And she knew that Tariq had been shot and killed. He was lured to a bogus address in North Park area of San Diego by a youth gang. It was his turn to make the pizza delivery. They gave the right apartment building address but the wrong apartment number. And he'd knocked on several doors because nobody ordered the pizza. When he came back to the car, put the pizzas in the trunk of his car as he was about to leave the scene of the crime, he was accosted by four youth gang members. Three of them were only 14 years old. And the leader of the gang was an 18-year-old who handed a 9-millimeter handgun to a 14-year-old and gave the order, bust him bones. My son is trying to back away from the driveway of the apartment building. And uh, the 14-year-old fired one round, which unfortunately came through driver's side window, entered my son's body under the left shoulder blade. The, bu the bullet actually traveled across the upper part of his chest and exited from his right armpit, but it was fatal. And of course, I did not know all of this. When I called Jennifer, she was just crying. But had I had already received a call from homicide, at that moment, I knew that it was not a mistaken identity that he had been shot and killed. And I remember I lost strength in both my legs as I collapsed to the floor. I was in my kitchen. I hit my head against the refrigerator and curled up in a ball in, on, on the floor. And I don't have the words to describe to you how excruciatingly painful that experience was for me. It literally felt like a nuclear bomb had gone off in my heart. And the pain was so unbearable, uh, I had my first out-of-body experience. And I left my body, I could not be in my body. And uh, I practice as a Sufi Muslim. Uh, I used to meditate an hour a day when my son was alive. My practice today is two hours. I believe in a higher power. I believe in God and I believe I left my body and went into the loving embrace of God. And I'm not so sure how long I was gone for. It seemed like a long time. And when the explosion subsided, God sent me back into my body with the wisdom that there are victims at both ends of the gun. Now, that did not come from my intellect. That did not come from my loving heart but it was a download from a higher power. And I've since read that sometimes in deep trauma, 
there is a spark of clarity. Every saint has suffered the dark night of the soul. And I live by myself, and an hour and a half later, my best friend and his wife were with me. His wife went to get Jennifer, and I was alone with my friend, and, he's, and by this time we had a visit from homicide to tell us there had been some eyewitnesses. There was a youth gang involved in a gang initiation killing of my son, and they were following up on the leads. And, 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 and my best friend's first words uh, to me were, whoever these kids are that killed Tariq, I hope they fry in hell. And my response to him was, I don't feel that way. I see that there are victims at both ends of the gun. So I, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to interrupt, Azim, but I, I, if you don't mind, for I want to make sure I understand this. This is the very same day still that that Tariq was killed, where where the thought there are victims at both ends of the gun came to you. This is not a month later after you've recovered a bit. This is not a year later. This is the very same day. Is that correct? Yeah, hour and a half after I found out. Wow, wow. Very, very same. And then now, you have at that one, point. You, yes, please. At that point, uh, when I said that to my buddy, he, he cried. He said, "Somebody killed Adam. Not only would I want the killer, I want the whole clan." Mm -hmm. I never, I never really went there. Forgiveness was not on my radar screen at that time. And then uh, months later, uh, and I didn't even know there was such thing as youth gangs. I worked in, as an international investment banker. I speak a half a dozen languages, and uh, I, you know, travel. I, you know, routinely flew in from London, changed suitcases, went to Tokyo, and then, obviously, I went through. I, 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 it took all of my willpower just to climb out of bed. I. I I was suicidal at one point. I went through every emotion you would anticipate a parent mm -hmm. to go through. I wanted to ask you but, about uh, of course, yes. Yeah, but, uh, but I started to look at this. I thought, you know, how did we create a country where children kill children? You know, how is it that kids that are 14 year old that are too young to drive are not too young to handle guns? You know? Uh, uh, why do our kids join uh, in gangs? I mean, we're the richest nation in the world, and the statistics are horrific. I mean, uh, we lose a child every two hours. The economists did a study. They took 25 first world countries in the world, added all the kids that die in those 25 countries, first world countries, England, Germany, Japan, Australia, and they multiply their total by 11, that is how many we lose on the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And I was flabbergasted that as the richest nation in the world, we can spend hundreds of billions of dollars on, war, on, 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 on wars on foreign soil, yet every single day, right here in our own backyard, our defenseless children are being wiped out in a frenzy of bizarre violence. So who's the enemy here, Rick? Is it the 14-year-old that killed my son, or is it the societal peer pressure that forced many young men and women to fall through the crack and then choose lives of crime and gangs and drugs and alcohol and weapons? That's the true culprit. So nine months after Tariq died, 
having learned these horrific statistics, and to honor my son. Uh, and as an American citizen, I felt I must do something about this tragedy because I am part of the society that my son was a victim of, of the 14-year-old. He was a victim of American society. I'm part of that society. And, uh, and, and I don't believe society is happenstance. All of us who are Americans are responsible for the society we have created. And I, I started the foundation to essentially take on this challenge of youth violence with a very simple premise that violence is a learned behavior. If you accept that as a truism, then nonviolence can also be a learned behavior, but you have to teach it because kids are not going to learn the principles of nonviolence through osmosis. Just, just as so in... Just, I, I don't, if you don't mind, I wanted to jump in for a moment. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Violence is learned just as racism is, for instance. That's not that's not in our fiber of being as we as we grow up. We're taught it. Before you and I, I want to very good, very much get into the the mandates of your foundation and why you formed it and, and what it does. But I want to go backwards for a moment first. You mentioned a few moments ago or a few minutes ago when your friends first showed up the, the night that Tarek was killed. They talked about the killers being burned in hell, and you didn't you didn't have that reaction at all. So be, between that night until the time you formed the foundation, did, did the ideas, did, did the fantasies of revenge ever enter your mind? Because that would probably be the natural response for most people, would it not? Yes, I, you know, I, revenge was never in my equation. According to the Sufi tradition, uh, obviously, I, uh, as I said to you earlier, I was suicidal at one point. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, unbearable grief, uh, despair, uh, no strength to even get out of bed. And I, I reached out to my uh, spiritual advisor in my faith. And, uh, and the counsel I got uh, from him over the period of several months after Tariq died is that how I reacted to this tragedy would determine the quality of the rest of my life. So it was it was put and, to you in those words then, and that that really registered on you. Is that was that a turning point? Yeah, yeah. So that kind of registered with me. And the second thing in our tradition, we have a forty day grieving period. I think there's a similar uh, ritual in the Jewish faith. That's right. Where you have sitting sitting shiva. I think it's about eleven days. That's right. I'm, I'm a member of that tribe. So, yes, that's correct. <laughs> right. You're correct. So it's very similar. So for 40 days, you don't, you know, cook or clean house. I had people from my congregation that brought me, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner. And, uh, and I had to tell the story because you're supposed to just grieve. And, and I couldn't even say, Tariq, I couldn't say it died. It was like a 2000 volt going through my system. But they were all very patient. And since he died in such a tragic manner, they wanted all the details. And I used to think, I can't tell this story one more time because it was so painful. But looking back at it, sure enough, it's like taking the scab of the wound. But when the scab reforms, it was a little smaller. Then on the 40th day, we have special prayers. And my spiritual advisor 
that dinna tells me that this ends the grieving period because in our tradition, this, the departed soul stays in close proximity of his family and loved ones during the 40 days. That's when you grieve. But after 40 days, the soul, which is immortal, moves to a different consciousness in preparation of its forward journey and excessive grieving by family members and loved ones will impede his journey in the next world. What my advice to you is instead of grieving, do good spiritual deeds in his name because good spiritual compassionate deeds done in the name of the departed soul provides high octane fuel for his journey in the next world. And I thought to myself, you know, why don't they teach you this stuff in college? Because I clearly remember four months after Tariq Amen. died. Yeah, I clearly remember this. Four months after Tariq died, which was April, he died in January. I was in a Mammoth. A friend of mine gave me his condo. And I, I was there trying to figure out how and why, how and why I would continue the rest of my life. And it was like a silent retreat. I went out to eat, but mostly I cooked in the condo. And I took long walks and spent time with nature. And this thing start this this advice I got from my spiritual teacher kept it was like a broken record. You know, spiritual uh, good deeds done in the name of the departed are spiritual currency provide high octane fuel. That's when I thought, what if I became the foe, not of my son's killer? but of the societal forces that led him to get involved with gangs and crime and drugs and alcohol and to prove himself with the gang, he took the life of my son. That's when I came down the mountain, so as to speak, stronger and decided to start the Tari Kamisa Foundation with the mandate to stop kids from killing kids by breaking the cycle of youth violence. And essentially three mandates. First was to save lives of children. The second, was to empower the right choices so they don't fall to the crack and choose lives of crime and gangs and drugs and alcohol and weapons. And third, to teach the principles of nonviolence, of accountability, of empathy, of compassion, of forgiveness, of peacemaking and peace building. And once I decided to start the foundation and wrote this mission statement, I asked the district attorney to introduce me to the grandfather and guardian of my son's killer. And, and, I, and when I met him, I told him, I'm not here screaming retribution and revenge because your grandson killed my son. Rather, I'm here in the spirit of compassion and forgiveness because what I really see here is we both lost a son. Okay, Azim, th I mean, this, this is amazing. And I, I, I do interrupt on occasion and I'm so sorry. And, and it's a fascinating story. And I, and I want to get very much into where you're going with this, but I, I, I want to put you on the spot for a moment and I hope you don't mind. It, it sounds, so you talk about in the Sufi tradition that there's a 14 day mourning period. And then for, for lack of a more eloquent way to say it, you are prescribed to move on. And you, you talked about what you adopted as your principles and in your heart. And it, it sounds to me, blessedly, that you have an amazing mind for that, first of all, an amazing heart for that, and a great background to that, that all combined to, to put you in the position where you could, you know, adopt 
that attitude and live that attitude. Uh, if you, okay, there's George Floyd. All right. There's no way this is going to get avoided today. Normally I wouldn't bring it up, but I think it's so, it, it just makes sense with you here. If you had, there's people riding all across America right now and in different parts of the world and just, just conducting themselves horribly in, in, for my judgment, in any case, what that's worth. These people obviously haven't had the experience that you've had to be able to, to adopt the attitude that you have. If people out there committing violent, violent acts in reaction to the killing of George Floyd or for whatever other reason they're giving themselves to do what they're doing. If you had those people in front of you right now and you had a minute or two minutes or whatever it is, knowing that they're not gonna probably steep themselves in the traditions that you talked about, what would you tell them? You've got a minute or two with these people that are out conducting these acts right now. What do you tell them? I think that, uh it's too early to tell them anything other than hold their hand and help them grieve. Uh, I think grieving is medicine. And there is a, a Turkish uh, adage that says, he who conceals his grief does not find a remedy for it. Uh, even though the tradition is 40 days of grieving, it took me three and a half years before the clouds parted because losing a child is probably the most complicated challenge for a parent probably every parent's nightmare. So I think that you can't bring George back uh, and, and you have to grieve. Although I was, I was pretty touched in tears when his brother uh, did not uh, uh, came out with a revengeful statement. I think mm -hmm. what he said, uh, uh, peace on the left, justice on the right. Uh, that uh, 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 act why acting violence you can't destroy violence with violence you know it, 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 it can't destroy hate with hate only love can do that this is an mlk jr and he did not go there because mm -hmm. violence does not bring my son back it always creates it always makes things worse not better and uh while uh, it is tragic and uh, uh, uh and, 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 you know, most police people are good people. I mean, they serve the country, they serve their city, uh -huh. uh, and they deserve our respect. They have a lot of pressure on their lives. But uh, obviously, not everybody is perfect. And, and sometimes something like this happens. I believe that the offending officers... Uh, uh, we need to know. I don't know what uh, his uh, behavior history is. Uh, we, we need to be made that public. Also, we need to have an independent investigation. Most of the police incidents are internal investigations, which I don't think is a good idea. It's like me trying to grade my own examination paper. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to be outside independent investigation. And depending on what the circumstances are, we need to appropriately deal with it. But I always say that in every crime, there is an opportunity to a better society. I don't think police should arrive at the scene of crime, you know, with loaded up with arms that are, that are uh, fit for the front line of a war zone. I think the police should de-escalate 
and be guardians and not warriors. And that should be part of the training so that we do not have a similar incident again. But I think at some point, and that uh, didn't it took me nine months to reach out to the grandfather and guardian of my son's killer. It took me five years to actually reach out to, to my son's killer. Okay, so let's talk, about, let's talk about you reaching out to the, to the grandfather for a moment. Now, I, I've read your story. I don't know how to pronounce his name, though. Pless, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Pless Felix, yeah. Pless Felix. All right, so you reach out to Pless Felix. You you have a, you have a daughter, Tazreen. And am I saying her name correctly? Yes, you are, yeah. You have a daughter, Tazreen. I know she's a, a very instrumental part of your foundation. So her she brother, exactly. she, she runs things, right? She's, pro she's probably your boss, I'm guessing. Right, as <laughs> I said. Fair, yeah. fair enough. Uh, in, in any case, so you have a daughter who is the sister of your son who has been murdered. You're now going to reach out to to your son's killer's family member. What does your daughter, what does Tazreen say about that? Is she like, Dad, what are you doing? Yeah. Or, or is she aligned with you in this? No, I mean, I, she was angry, um, but uh, she didn't join me till three years after I started the foundation. Three years and after? She, okay, all right. Three okay. years after, yeah. But uh, she, uh, both of them grew up in Seattle, mm -hmm. and then I started the foundation nine months after he died. And then uh, I told her I need some help. Uh, and when she came down here, uh, it took her a while. She wasn't as quick to forgive as I was. Okay. And, and her anger was not so much at Tony, who took Tariq's life, but she was very angry at uh, the uh, person who owned the pizza the restaurant. Why did you send my brother to go deliver pizza in a dangerous area? Okay. Which wasn't the case, because I know the owner very well. They routinely delivered uh, pizzas in this neighborhood. In fact, the, the person who found my son was a priest that lived in that apartment building. So it's a middle-class area. So they didn't think of anything to send Tariq over there because they routinely routinely send uh, sure. you know, people. And, uh, and it took her uh, a little longer. Uh, I, I met Tony five years after. Uh, she recently met him about four or five years ago. And uh, Tony is now 39 and he uh, both of us were at his parole hearing in November of 2018. He was finally released uh, in April of 2019 to a halfway house. And then in October of 2019, which was a few months ago, he moved in with his grandfather and has also joined uh, the found no, as, as a volunteer. Both of the grandfather and I volunteer for the foundation. Uh, and we give upwards of 25 hours a week to it, not complaining. The work has been very fulfilling. And Tony also is now volunteering uh, for, the, for the foundation making and very passionate to make sure other young people do not follow in his former footsteps. So I think okay. that... that I, I, I'm that sorry. I, I have to... I'm so sorry. I have to back up for a second. All right. So... You've told the story so many times, and I'm I'm getting chills listening to it because I, I know the story, and it, it's right. it's blown my mind since I really understood it. But for people out there who may not have heard this before from you, I, I really 
I have to do this. I want to make sure I want to tell you what I'm thinking and what I'm what I'm feeling. Your son was murdered in cold blood. You came to you were an international banker. I'd imagine you probably did pretty well in that career. Yes, reasonably well. I mean, I, it was like a, a banker's job. Okay. So, uh, but you know, bankers make good money, and I had a good social life. Okay. And uh, traveled the world and uh, stayed in nice places, and I was successful right. at it. All right. So you're a successful international banker whose son is is murdered in cold blood. You grieve horribly, as anybody would, of course. Nine months later, you you change your life because now you're going to start a foundation. So I'll, I just want people to understand this out there. What what the process, or to I don't know if I could never understand it, to imagine what the process must have been for you to come to that place from where you were. And now you're telling us a story, not a story, you're, telling, you're recounting what happened where years later, you are, you've not only reached out to the grandfather of the, your son's killer, you've created a foundation that you've involved him in. I'm assuming you've become personal friends as well with the grandfather, with Plus, is that right? Absolutely. He's as close to me as my own brother. We've been together for 25 years. Wow. So your friends. Yeah. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, 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 I would never have met him had his grandson not killed my son. And in our safe school model, which we have five different programs, the first one is a live assembly with me and him. And we're on stage um, and we are introduced. This man's grandson killed this man's son. And here they are together in the spirit of compassion, forgiveness, and brotherhood. And you can see uh, that the love we have, the love and the respect we have for each other is very palpable. It's pin drop silence. Uh, you know, we specialize from fifth grade to tenth grade because Tony joined a gang in sixth grade and murdered my son in eighth grade. The middle years, as you probably know, are very tough. Lots going on in our kids bodies as well as uh, all the challenges from becoming uh, moving from elementary through middle school to high school so uh, we know that space very well and uh, and he's as passionate about making sure that we don't lose more kids mm -hmm. that die like my son or end up in prison like his grandson and that was my attitude when I met him for the first time I said you know I'm uh, what I see here is we both lost a son. I can't bring my son back from the dead. And there's nothing you can do to get Tony out of prison. Yeah, his is now, Tony his lived. Now, he's now in prison yeah, for 20 lived with 25 his, years. Right. All right. And Tony, so, lived, with his, yes. Tony lived with his grandfather who calls him daddy. But the one thing you and I can do is to make sure no other young person ends up dead like my son or ends up uh, in prison like your grandson. That. That's something you and I can, and it behooves us to do that because it was your grandson that killed my son. Will you help me? That's how, that was our first meeting. And he was so quick to take my hand of forgiveness. And uh, the first thing out of his mouth is he says, thank you for reaching out to me ever since I found out my son was responsible for the death of your son. I went into the prayer closet. He's a, he's a Baptist from the South, Christian, I'm Muslim. Praying that someday I get an opportunity to meet you so I could extend my condolences to you and your family. Also a very spiritual man, same age as me. And of course, I'll help you. And here we are 25 years later, still together. 
It, it, it's, it's unbelievable. It really is. And, and, and I, I want to get back to your mission, of course. And I know I keep jumping in and, and trying to interweave what it must have been like personally for you. But I'm really hoping that people watching this are going to feel that and, and understand that uh, and maybe, maybe use it as a source of inspiration. Well, you were telling the, the story a few minutes ago. You know, you flash forward pretty quickly to a few years later. You know, you say Tony is now working in the foundation. Um, what I find mind blowing is first you befriend Ples, become good friends. Then one day you decide you're going to go visit Tony in prison, your son's murderer. Then you form a relationship with him. And then you, from what I understand, and, and correct me if I'm mistaken, you advocated very strongly for him to be released from prison. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And for me to, to complete my journey of forgiveness, which I talk a lot about, I've written five books, I teach forgiveness. Um, but for me to complete my journey of forgiveness, I knew at some point I had to come eyeball to eyeball with Tony. And that took a lot of meditation, thousands of hours, because at some level you want to wring his neck. We're all human, you know, we're, we're, we're mortals. But, uh, uh, but I five years later, I told the grandfather I'm ready to meet Tony. Okay. Uh, but I want you to go with me because I want you to introduce me. But then I need some alone time with him because you are yeah. the grandfather. And I have some tough questions for him. And yeah, I really want to ask you about this first meeting. So I'm glad you're getting into this. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, we spent an hour and a half together. And, uh, and he was able to fill some of the holes in the story. And uh, but what what was very transformative for both of us is that at one point in that hour and a half, we locked eyeballs. I'm looking in his eyes, he's looking in my eyes, and we kept that, that glance for a long time. I'm trying to find a murderer, and I didn't. I was able to climb through his eyes and touch the spark in him that I got that day, that the spark in him was no different than the spark in me or you or anybody else that is watching this interview. I wasn't expecting that. He was 19 years old. Okay. He was remorseful. He was articulate. He was well-mannered. He did not portray any of the typical attitudes of 19 years old. I could tell that my hand of forgiveness had also shifted him. A likable kid. If you walk through the doors, you would have the same impression. I wasn't expecting that. So the first time, that point, first time you went to see him, he already knew quite a bit about you, I would imagine then. Oh, yeah, because I knew his grandfather for a good four years. Uh, and, and he knew there was another uh, gentleman that helped me start the foundation, uh, Mike Reynolds, who interviewed Tony 22 times between the time that uh, he was arrested for the murder. And it took them two and a half years to have a hearing where they decided that he should be tried as an adult. He was the first 14 year old to be tried as an adult. And during that two and a half years, Mike met with Tony 22 times. But in those, 20, in those two and a half years, Tony stayed in his bravado. Everybody was stupid. The DA was stupid. The, uh, the pizza delivery man was stupid. 
And then the day before the hearing, the public defender called Pless and said, you need to talk to Tony because I don't think he, he gets the gravity of what this hearing is about tomorrow. And that when Tony just broke down and cried. And as Pless tells the story, uh, jumped in his uh, lap and says, I will do the right thing. And at that hearing, uh, partly because Mike had told him that the Kamisa family has forgiven you. They see you as a victim. Uh, they are not uh, about revenge and retribution. At that uh, uh, hearing, he says, I shot and killed Tari Kamisa, a person I did not know who was not doing anything wrong to me. That never happens when a judge says, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? What do they normally say? Not guilty. He didn't say that. He said, I shot and killed Tari Kamisa, a person I did not know who was not doing anything wrong to me. I am guilty. I pray to God that Mr. Kamisa would forgive me, although I had already forgiven him for the harm that I caused him. He asked for my forgiveness in that hearing. And even the judge said, you don't have to plead guilty because this is not about trying you for murder. This is about trying figuring out whether we should try you as an adult or as a juvenile. And he says, I, I, I am guilty. So she had to then sentence him. There was never a murder trial. And in California, if you get a murder conviction, you automatically get a retrial. And think about how many millions of dollars that saved the California taxpayers because this, this court cases are not cheap, as you probably already know. Mm -hmm. So it's a very profound story. And I believe that, that uh, Tony shifted as a result uh, of my forgiveness and, and, and that he saw that, that I had compassion for him as a victim as well because he had a pretty tough life. I mean, I, I know everything they should know about. He was born to a 15-year-old, which was Plez's daughter. His father was never in his life, was seduced at eight by his, by his uncle's girlfriend. His favorite uncle was killed in South, South Central LA. He was sent to live with his grandfather at the age of eight, an angry kid. And when you look and see that if, you know, if I had grown up and lived the same life as Tony had, you know, Tariq was nobody to him. Would I have made the same decision? So I think it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, you could take the position, you kill my one and only son, hanging from the highest pole. Well, how does that improve society? And now through the foundation, and now think about when he's on stage with me, when, because we're in front of tens of thousands of students every year. When he says, when I was 11, I joined a gang when I was 14, I murdered Mr. Kamisa's son. I spent the last umpteen years in prison I wish I could turn the clock back. How many 11 years old that are in the audience thinking about joining a gang, this Tony's going to change their mind. Mm -hmm. That's the power of forgiveness. Have you, could you so, give me, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have a great example of probably many great examples of being approached by an audience member af after you and uh, Tony have spoken. Um, is there anything that stands out, a young member of the audience that maybe was at risk, who was so moved yeah. that you see a change right on the spot? Yeah. Let me, I just came out with my fifth book. It's called uh, Leadership for the Greater Good. 
Okay. And uh, and one of the audience uh, students, I just spoke at Bishop's, which is a very high-end private school in La Jolla, where I live. And because uh, um, we are now broadly going to schools teaching nonviolence, teaching peace building, peacemaking, community engagement, resolving conflict without violence. Uh, we are spawning leaders that are committed to nonviolent uh, community civic engagement and be committed to making peace in their schools, in their homes, in their community. So this is a this is a, 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 a something you just ask for. I have been in the foster care system since age eight, and your story and ability to spread the idea of peace inspired me to take the appropriate steps towards success as a 13-year-old. Wow. Following your presentation, following your presentation seven years ago, my attitude towards the world no longer represented hatred, but took me down a path of forgiveness. Forgiveness, oh, she's, a, she's a foster kid. Forgiveness of my biological mother, whom I deem responsible for my being in the foster care system, and forgiveness of the world, whom I had accountable for all of my young confusion and pain. Today, as a senior, I'm extremely appreciative of the message you have and continue to spread as it has not only changed my life seven years ago, but still influences my daily journey. Vanessa Brunetta, the Bishop's School Class of 2020. Wow. Okay. And that, that pretty, that, that's, that's your win. I mean, that's the goal of everything you do right there, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. She's going to change the world. Uh, I, I have a, given now a thousand presentations worldwide to kids. And I speak even beyond fifth and 10th grade. I speak to university students as well. I have over 150,000 letters. And each one will tear you up, well, wow. because uh, because not only are you know what gives me hope, Rick, is not only are these principles teachable, our kids are hungry for them, and that gives me hope. Because can I can I see? Can you hold the book up again? I'm sorry, while you're telling us. Sure. I'm sorry. Go so ahead. This please. is the this is the front cover, and I. I, what right. I was reading was the back cover. Okay. And that's her photo right there, this way. That's and where? photo of Vanessa right there. I see her. How, how can I get this book? I want to, I'd like to order that. Is it on your website, on Amazon? What do you suggest? You can, yeah, both. You can order it on my website. You get a signed copy. Uh, or you can order it on uh, Amazon as well. It's called right. Leadership for the Greater Good. Okay. And it just, it, it just, like I just received I ordered a hundred copies uh, and I just received them today. <laughs> Beautiful. So if I order a copy and then I'm in California and you're speaking, uh, I can bring it to you to, to have it signed, hopefully. If you order it from my website, I'll sign it, Rick, and then send it to you. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Good yeah. to know. All right. If, you're, if you buy the book on my website, uh, I'm happy to autograph it for you or for any one of your viewers. Great. Uh, if you buy from Amazon, obviously they will send it to you, so I can't autograph it. Fair enough. But if you buy it from me, then I sign it, and then uh, it's shipped by a fulfillment house that uh, will send it to you. 
So you go to azimkamisa.com and you'll see all of my books in there. Um, but John, your point is that... Uh, John, John, our producer, is here is with us. John, when you have the chance, please uh, please put Azim's website up on, uh, on the crawl as well, if you yes. would. Great, thank you. Right, Azim, I'm sorry, please continue. No, I was just saying that, uh, that uh, having given... Uh, uh, a thousand plus thousand plus presentations and having received all of these letters just like the one I read, um, I feel like my son's gift was to put me on my spiritual purpose. Obviously, my spiritual purpose was not to be an international investment banker, but my spiritual purpose was to teach our youth, our children, and to teach forgiveness even to our adults and, and, to, and to promote non-violent leaders that are committed to peacemaking and peace building. And, and this work has been extremely fulfilling uh, for me. And, uh, and I wouldn't be doing this had I not lost my son. Not that I wouldn't want him back in a New York second, but sometimes in tragedy, um, you can find your purpose. It, it, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a paradox. Is this a tragedy or is it mystically meaningful? And I guess it is a bit of both because uh, uh, beyond my imagination for everything that has manifested in my life as a result of me choosing forgiveness 25 years ago, I never thought I'd be speaking to this many kids that have 600 keynotes and have won something like 80 awards and written five books and the foundation is successful is now reaching we are already opening up other parts of the country and the world uh, uh, through our safe school model that we are successfully teaching the principles of nonviolence, of accountability of restorative practices of peacemaking and peace building that we are creating leaders that hopefully like vanessa will be out there trying to make sure that we put a end to this mayhem of violence because we have way too much violence in our country you know azim uh, there's a couple of comments that that i want to make here when i when i look at when we look in the eye here as much as we can a continent apart and on a on a zoom call i i see a man of peace and purpose i mean that that that's what i get and i always look to and hope to inspire a bit on the show and particularly with with guests such as yourself who who set an example. And, you know, there are so many people out there hurting right now, um, committing acts of violence yeah. and, and in so many other ways also. And, and I'm sure at the risk of oversimplifying, a, a message I heard from you a moment ago was things things happen for a reason. And I, I know it it sounds very cliche to put it that simply. Um, and you're right, there is there is tragedy but the beauty on the other side of that is how you can come out of it if you choose to come out of it in, in a positive fashion. I mean, I, I only I only aspire to to oh, I probably can't aspire to the heights you've achieved as far as far as your level of peace. Uh, I think that's amazing. my um, you know, I'm in the pit bull rescue world of all things, and I got in and I love it. It's my greatest passion on this planet and, you know, demystifying the, the reputation around the breed. And I'm not going to get too into it, but the reason I'm in this world now is 
my dog 12 years ago was let out of a boarding facility where he was just for the night by a careless owner who was run over and crushed by a car. And it was at a very hard time in my life. And at that point in my life, to me, that was the final straw. You know, some people will say, well, that's crazy. It's just a dog, but it's a, it's a personal thing for me. I can tell you my reaction at that time, Azim, was if I, if the boarding facility guy was there, I probably would have put my hands around his neck. It probably would not have been a pretty thing. And it took me many, many years to realize that, wow, seeing Marley's crushed body hold out a trash bag got me to a point 12 years later where my heart is so full of what I can do for, for this poor breed. So I see now why, why that happened. Uh, I'm getting that message from you, but I want to ask you to address everybody that's watching this again. People are in pain right now. People are going through all sorts of, you know, to, to each person, their own pain is the biggest in the world. You know that, and, and I know that. What are words, what's a word of wisdom or words of wisdom you have to impart to people that are going through pain right now? How can they come out of it? Well, you know, when there is a great story in a book called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Uh, pain is not a bad thing. Sometimes the universe uh, nudges us through pain to find our our walk in life, much like you're doing with pit bulls, much like I'm doing with youth violence. But this story uh, uh, demonstrates that uh, part of understanding the pain, there, there is spiritual bullion in every time we get a hard hit. One of my books is called The Secrets of the Bulletproof Spirit, How to Bounce Back from Life's Hardest Hits. And what uh, Khalil Gibran is saying He's a, it's a beautiful book, The Prophet, and there are poems in it about children and work and love and marriage and everything we go through. But there's a poem about joy and sorrow. And what he's saying is when joy, when you're feeling joy, sorrow is sleeping on your bed. And when you're feeling sorrow, joy is sleeping on your bed because you feel joy and sorrow or pain with the same faculty. And he gives example of this potter who's making this masterpiece sculpture out of clay. And he's so into doing this that he actually wets the sculpture with his tears. But then he has to take the finished masterpiece and put it in a 2300 degree Fahrenheit oven for 18 hours so the clay can become porcelain and radiate its beauty. In other words, I know what is to be in the 2300 degree Fahrenheit oven, much like you do when you lost your, your pet uh, of 12 years, um, because you went through that pain. But out of, just like that, just like that clay becoming porcelain and radiate its beauty, here you are helping other pit bulls and here am I saving other youth. So I think that in pain, I, I, the Dalai Lama, I have met with him many times now, he would tell you that pain is unavoidable. Suffering is, because suffering is self-inflicted. But pain is sometimes the way the universe is trying to nudge you towards your spiritual journey, your spiritual path. So if you are spiritually evolved, and I think we all are on the spiritual journey of evolution, 
then right in that pain, there may be a positive message that could change the further trajectory of the rest of your life. We're all here to serve. And there's a great uh, quote from an Indian philosopher that says, uh, I dreamt life was joy. I woke up and I found out that life was service. Behold, I acted and service is joy. So the point I'm trying to make is we are here to serve. And for us to be able to find peace and happiness, it is going to be in the service of others. One thing that is very clear about uh, COVID-19 is that our lives depend on others. And yet, as Americans, we're so individualistic, so, so me, 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 that maybe it is time that we love others as much as we love ourselves because our lives depend on others. And yet we don't see that as a communal uh, effort. So it's my hope that uh, through this pain that uh, we become a more kind, more generous, more service-oriented, more compassionate society and come together in the spirit of brotherhood. Because, you know, I truly believe there's one human race. You know, race and color of your skin doesn't determine character. I always say when I meet people, I, see, I, I look at their souls and I look at their character. And, and I think that unless we come together as one human race, we'll never, ever experience peace. And, and, and I truly believe that maybe this is a wake-up call for all of us to see that it's not just about me. There's so much more to life than a career. You just don't live at home and work. You live in community. And what are you doing to make your community safer, your community more successful, less violent? And that's where I think we need to inspire our people. And sometimes it takes some pain to get to get that, you know? That, that's beautiful. You know, Azim, there, exactly along the lines of what you're saying, that there are two things that, that now I'm going to get up on my pulpit for a moment that I always preach. And again, like most things I say, it's, it's overly simplified. But one is this. You have people now listening to you. And my guess is anybody watching you and listening to you right now probably is moved to do good and be in service of their fellow man or woman. I, I believe that's the reaction people will have to you. And I'm sure you get that all the time. So they might then finish watching this and go, what do I do now? So what, what I like to preach is this, the, the, the simple part of it. We're all going to go out somewhere later today or tomorrow or whatnot. And there are people out there in pain and people looking for violence and people looking to incite and many people we know are like that. We can see our friends on Facebook posting things we never thought would come from our friends, hateful things or divisive things. So I like to recommend this. When you go out today or tomorrow, try this. No matter what mood you're in, tell yourself you're to be disciplined. And I think everybody can do this. You're to be disciplined enough that the first five people you come across no matter, again, what, what color they are, what race, what creed, what they look like, if they're acting in a way you like, acting in a way you don't like, none of that matters. Put it all aside and just be nice to the first five people you come across today. That's something that I think everybody could do right now. 
And I, I like to imagine what the snowball effect of that would be if everybody put that into practice for, for just a day. So I, I wanted to jump and you inspire me because I'm sitting there thinking, what can I do to be of service as more than I already do? And I would imagine other people are thinking the same thing. So I just wanted to put that out there and share that. That's all. It's good. I mean, there's a good line from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He says, we should only have one religion in the world. Let's call it kindness, is exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know? and, exactly. Uh, and, and, but, you know, here's the other issue. Because, you know, again, something I learned from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, that every emotion has a frequency. Okay? Some emotions have a very low frequency, like hatred and anger and greed and avarice and jealousy and judgment. Happiness doesn't live there. Then there are certain emotions that have very high frequencies, like goodwill, friendship, trust, gratitude, empathy, compassion, forgiveness is right there with love. These are very high frequencies. Happiness lives there. And it's not that complicated to know at any given moment in time, where are you vibrating? In a lower frequency or in a higher frequency. Now, with when you meet somebody like his Dalai Lama, he's up here high frequency 24-7. Yeah, I'm sure. Or get angry and you fall off the wagon and you go down to a lower frequency. When that happens to me, I meditate two hours a day, now I do two and a half, I get back up here. But I can tell you, having done this work for the last 25 years, teaching forgiveness and empathy and nonviolence and compassion and accountability and, and, and conflict resolution uh, without violence, I am spending more time in the high frequencies. And when I am spending more time in the high frequency, I'm healthier, I'm happier, I am more in the flow of life. So this is a good takeaway to know that we can all vibrate. It's not complicated to know where you're vibrating. And I, you know, uh, uh, our true nature is to be compassionate. And, and when you are living in compassion, you are happier, more joyful, more, more healthier, and also more in the flow of life. It is only when you get into this low vibratory frequencies of hatred and violence and anger and resentment and greed and avarice where sometimes you end up getting cancer, you know, because uh, uh, it, it's not our true nature. So well, Azim, I've learned to yeah. I've learned to as a result of my tragedy, and, uh, and and I'm so glad I went the way I did. I could have gone the other way. What good would that have done, you know? And and here you are today. You're inspiring millions, and I know you'll in, inspire millions more. Uh, we, we've taken, I, I dare say, probably too much of your time. I'd love to talk with you again another time, if that's all right with you. Uh, I, I would like for today to let people know how they can learn more about you and really get into doing or helping to further the work that your foundation is doing. What, what can we tell our listeners and viewers out there? Well, I would say that... Um... Uh, the website for the foundation is www.tkf.org. Um, to get involved, uh, we have several schools waiting for our programs. And uh, uh, if they are able to donate, to please do, because that helps us get to more kids. Uh, while we are getting a little money from school districts, 
I spend as much time raising money for the foundation as I'm actually talking to kids. And, uh, and it breaks my heart that there may be 20 to 40 schools that are waiting for my program that I don't have the staff to get it over there. So if they are able to contribute and donate, they can donate online at tkf.org. We welcome people to join us. We need volunteers. Uh, uh, I speak a lot and to invite me to speak because every time I speak, uh, I'm able to create more donors for the foundation. Uh, and if they have conferences or right now, obviously all of the speaking is done on Zoom, but if they have events uh, uh, and they are part of an organization that I'm very happy to showcase the work we're doing in the foundation. And if, I, if they can't do any of this, I want to really reach out to your audience to say for them to get engaged with the community. I think civic engagement is very important to keep it civil. We are coming to an election year, and I think it is incredibly important we go out and vote. This book that I just showed you, Leadership for the Greater Good, what I'm what I'm posit, what I, what I am what I am recommending or what I posit is that we now need leaders that have competency not only in their field of endeavor, but because they are leaders also that they have the ability to take on societal ills which exist in most every community and find impactful viable and affordable solutions much like i have done with tkf with youth violence and third that they espouse role model and teach strong ethical moral and spiritual values so we need leaders that have competency in all of these three areas so if they are a leader to please get involved not just in their field of endeavor, but in their community to create viable, impactful, you know, affordable solutions to societal ills. And the, 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 the subtitle for this is a guide for truth to power champions. You don't hear much truth anymore. What happened to our ethical, moral, and spiritual values? We need more and more leaders that are exemplary of this triad of competencies. So, Thanks. Thank you for having. Uh, yeah. What, what I want to do before before you let me go, I do want to say this. I, I I was actually the reason I'm looking down is I'm trying to text uh, John, our producer, while while we're here, but I was unable to do it. I see that we have a, across the bottom of the screen we have a crawl that's www.azimkamisa.com. I I want to let people know the website. It's www.tks.org. Is that correct for for Tarek Kamisa Foundation. F for Foundation, no, correct? TKF. Yeah. Okay. They can they can get there from my website as well. Okay. So it won't be it won't be uh, totally lost, but uh, TKF.org, they can go directly there, or they can go to my website and there is a click button there and brings them over to the foundation website. There we go. And there it is. Someone just put it on. John, got it. Thank you, John. Uh, Azim, thank you so much. I've been wanting to talk with you for a long time now. Absolute pleasure having you on. I'm inspired. I'm going to order your book, um, but I'm going to order from Amazon because I want to come watch you speak live and get it signed from you in person. So I, I hope to All meet right. you before, before long. All right. Well, thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure meeting you and I look forward to another chance for us to come together. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Be blessed. You are. Namaste. John.
John yes. Pozorowski, are you there? Yes, sir. I want to interview you now. Are you ready? I am ready. Dude, what'd you think? How's that for a broad question? What'd you think, man? What's your gut telling you? You know, what's so funny. Like we interview like Tank Abbott and you're like, okay, that guy is obviously tough. You know what I mean? You can just tell like, okay, he's just a tough guy. But Azim, he's a different kind of tough. He might be one of the most, if not the most mentally tough people I've ever heard talk. I mean, how could you be like that relaxed and that calm and that like under, not under pressure? You know what I mean? He was so cool, calm and collected about his son's death. I literally would have you know, wanted to kill those kids. You know what I mean? I would have freaked out. He might be the most mentally tough person uh, by far that we've had on the show. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It's like, you're right. You, you can't judge a book by its cover. You get you get a zine. Guys like Emmanuel Jahl, who you know, these guys look. We have our we have our trials and tribulations. God knows. And as I said, I think to each person, it's like almost like their own stub toe is the biggest problem on earth at that moment. But there's different degrees of what we might measure as problems or catastrophes. And I don't think you go through much worse than than what guys like Emmanuel and especially. Azim have been through and um, you know what what I got from that guy is that guy is real man you know it's like you, you can tell he's he's done these talks hundreds of times before if not thousands and he probably could recite it in his sleep I would imagine but it, what got me is is how genuine at least from from my opinion my standpoint how genuine he is and how much he practices what he preaches so to speak w was your vibe the same Yes. Yes. I just I love like he's the way he speaks and the, how clear he is. And there's no kind of regrets of, of how he kind of handled everything and what he's doing and how he kind of moved forward in the foundation. And like he said, he really made a total um, kind of life for himself in, in doing good and speaking out and being against the, you know, these kind of crimes and not really blaming Tony, but kind of blaming everyone that was kind of involved in Tony's life. And that kind of led him down that wrong path. You know, how about that, that quote, I'm not usually good at remembering quotes, but I think this one's in, indelibly uh, impressed in my brain. There's violence at both ends of the gun is what he yeah. said. Yep. And he came and, you know, and I get how, you know, a year later or five years or 10 years later, you might come to that, but to come to that right on the spot, man, that, that's amazing. And, you know, I, I don't think I could do that. I, these days, you know, I've been in my spiritual practice for three years. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a beginner. Um, nowadays, when something happens, you know, something catastrophic or even a small problem, I'm pretty quick now to go, hold on, stop. Before you react, things happen for a reason. Let's find out if we can find the reason behind this. And that makes a huge difference. And I, uh, I think that example that he gave us today to come to violence happens at both ends of the gun to get himself out of going to a hateful place and doing that the day of, that's probably the single best example I have ever heard. And I look for examples, probably the best I've ever heard of being able to turn your mind to a positive place and, and look for the, dare I say, good in a situation. Yeah. And I think I think it shows you that no matter what's going on, we always have that choice. It's up to us in any moment. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's so true. It's on both sides of the gun. That is so true. You don't even think about that. You know, both victims. I mean, both 
in that situation, both of them were victims. But you never really kind of think of that. You just think of you know the good and the bad. You don't think of both people, which is so interesting. It's such a different way to think about it. Uh, I honestly probably would never even that would never even cross my mind. But that was he's such a mentally tough guy that he kind of thinks of every situation. I thought that was really a kind of uh, profound of him. It's a really important way to live, I think. And I, and I do think at the risk of sounding like a cliche that that that's inspirational. Uh, think about when we go out. You know, I mentioned going out later today or tomorrow and. We're going to come across somebody somewhere, undoubtedly, that's going to look at us the wrong way. It just happens. And some of us will have that that gut wrench response, which is like, fuck you, right? Whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but what, are that, what is that person going through in their lives that might have brought them to that moment where they look at us the wrong way? Who knows what's going on with them, what they just left? And what they're experiencing, what they're going home to. Maybe they don't have a home to go to. Who knows what's going on? Um, and I think it's it's worth practicing presence of mind to understand that. I mean, this is a small example. There's violence on both sides of the gun, but it's still an analogy. Everybody has their own experience. And if we understand that, I think we ourselves are much better positioned mm-hmm. to, be, to be like Uzim Kamisa. We can we can spread the seeds of, of love as opposed to sowing the seeds of hate in any in any moment. Yes, totally agree. Totally, totally agree. And it's just with with him, I just crazy if you'd really like just think about it. He took his son's death and he's creating a foundation. You know, he's going out speaking. He's writing books about peace. I would never in a million years even think about peace ever, you know, after that, I would, you know what I mean? I would might go the complete opposite direction. You know, you never know like what, what's going to happen, anger, uh, grief, maybe depression. And he totally turned it into a, a complete 180, complete positive. I just love that. He did. So here's what I want to ask you now, John Pozerowski. I want to ask you this. I know you pretty well now. You're a nice, I think you're a very nice guy. Um, much nicer than, than most people, I think. Yet a moment ago, you said you would never, you said, I would never, I would be more, I, you know, when, what you said was a never think about going to forgiveness and forming a foundation and whatnot. Instead, you might be inclined to be angry or whatever it is or seek revenge because that's the human condition. This mm-hmm. is not not yep. an indictment on you personally at all. Please don't take it that way. That's the human condition. So the interview, the conversation we just had with Ozim, the conversation we're having now, does that tell you that maybe in fact you could react to something that horrible and that catastrophic in a positive way? It, it would be really hard. It would take a lot longer than that that day of it happening. You know what I mean? He said he his mind changed that day. It would take a whole hell of a lot longer than a day for me. Uh, may take twenty five years or something. Not that I would exact revenge or something like that, but you know the anger would be there. The thought would always be there. It would definitely take a lot longer. And, and that was crazy when he said it. It took him like an hour and a half, and he completely had that revelation where he had an out of body experience, and that all kind of came to his mind. To me personally, it would take take me so long to kind of mentally be able to deal with that and handle that. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I, I would never in a million years say he was blessed by what happened in his life. Right. His right. Was murder. That's horrible. But it was a blessing to come to that an hour and a half later. No doubt about it. Most of us will never touch anything like that, myself included. You know, I, I do know now that all these years later, I can think about the guy who had the dog boarding facility that let my dog out. 
and I can think about that guy and send him forgiveness and even send him love and do that in a way where I feel that and I believe that. I didn't do that in an hour and a half, man. Believe me, I would I would have killed that guy if I'd seen him at that time or done something pretty horrible. Completely changed now. Thankfully, I've got a long, like I always say, I'm a beginner. I have a long ways to go, but I can do that now and I can feel that now. So I, I get obviously you're gonna think I'm trying to get a certain answer out of you, but I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask it anyway. Over a period of time, hour and a half, 25 years, do you think it's possible to forgive anything? Hmm. Ooh, hey, it's crazy. I, I, you would tend to think no. Like to me myself, I would tend I tend to think no. But listening to him, I don't know. Somehow he he uh, he would obviously you know yes. But to me, I would just immediately think no. Okay, well, I'm gonna to to sign off for today because I actually I'm really eager to call my brother and tell him about this guy so he can have him come out to his temple in Newport Beach, California, because I know it would be perfect for them. Um, uh, he, here, here's my sign-off challenge for the day to you and I both. Let's be open-minded. I don't want to say to the fact, because it's not a fact for all of us, but let's be open-minded to the, the idea, the possibility that we can forgive anything and anybody. Is that reasonable enough to leave it there for today? Yeah, very, very reasonable. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, John, thank you. I appreciate it as always. And uh, on to the next one. Everybody, Rick Bassman in the wilds of Maui, signing off for Talking Tough, www.talking-tough.com. For myself and Talking Tough, for John Pozerowski and the two-man power trip, have a good day, everybody. Be nice out there. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.